Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Dan Frezza, who serves as Chief Advancement Officer of Institutional Advancement and Executive Director of the College of Charleston Foundation. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Brent. Good to be with everybody. Well, we appreciate you making time. In addition to your day job, you have contributed to books. You've been a board member uh, in the space and uh, have, I know, some personal hobbies that keep you on your toes as well. But for today, I want to start with just learning a little bit more about your own higher education journey. Uh, You can often trace your role and responsibility today back to uh, some early inflection points. So take me back to, say, junior, senior year of high school. Who was that guy? Where were you? I believe North Carolina. And uh, what led you to Western Carolina University? Yeah, I'll skip the high school days for both of our benefits. But was um highlights or lowlights only yeah there we go uh i grew up in a a small beach town in in north carolina and chose to go as far away from home as possible so that's there's no scientific reason other than geographic my parents wouldn't pay for out-of-state tuition and colowee is as far from riceville beach as you can ever get on a map and stay in state of north carolina so that was the the genesis um you know, for me, it was probably the, the first transformative step in higher education. I, I didn't no 18 year old has a, a thought about land grant school versus uh, research versus regional versus liberal arts. I just found myself at a public re- regional public liberal arts. And it, I've been a believer in it ever since. Um, funny enough, left senior year and had less than two days, including my Jeep packed full of everything that I owned. And I drove to Raleigh and ended up at a research one land grant at NC State grad school. And so I had the, the yin and yang, if you would, of experience. And while I loved it there, I still believe in liberal arts and the small university feel more than ever. And, and so that's just been me personally in terms of higher ed. So tell um, me about Dan, Dan, the student. Were you super involved? Did you get exposure to the alumni and development world at all as a student? Or, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, just tell me about it all. And ultimately, what sparked your interest in not only, you know, getting the college degree, but knowing right away heading for master's education was uh, in the cards. So one of my mentors, a um, gentleman named Bill Haggard, which is probably the the same dean or evp or avp of student affairs that every one of us have at our institutions today or worked alongside well bill was my guy and you know i was probably the most annoying thorn in his side for three of my four years because i was the the ifc guy i was the fraternity president guy i was the ra i was an orientation leader i i just drank the student affairs kool-aid and um found time to be a student phone on caller that was probably my first and i'm talking old school where literally we had a laptop with a Excel spreadsheet and a marker and a highlighter and an actual dial-up phone. That was our, our phone center. Um, that was my first glimpse into it, but I still left Western hellbent on student affairs. You know, I wanted to be the next Bill Haggard and my graduate school led me to student affairs studies and I switched to advancement during graduate school. That, that was the, the, the major turn, turning point for me. And, and what sparked that shift and specifically, yeah. Um, I was a Greek life advisor, so uh, I am still involved in my fraternity. You know, I, we have an alumni group. I, I, I give back. Um, I didn't go the national route where I had some guys that went and worked for international headquarters. So I did the, the middle ground. I stayed with one foot still in higher ed, but one foot supporting student affairs. And what I knew mostly was Greek life. 
a year managing a Greek life organization, all fraternities, all sororities, even with some of the best people in the business was enough for me to know I didn't want to do that for a living. And um, I actually changed my degree um, at NC State. You had an MS or an MED track, and it was only student affairs or college student personnel focused. I worked with our advisor to create the first advancement track. And while I didn't have the advancement degree on mine, those that came after me are able to actually have a specialization in advancement there now. And so I created an externship and went down to Auburn University for about 10 months and worked in the alumni membership marketing shop down there. And that was my first professional kind of track into advancement work. Um, came back and changed my internship to the Alumni Association from Greek Life. My whole second year of graduate studies was focused on alumni membership and programs and affinity work. And then that led me to the East Carolina job in alumni affairs. What you just described about NC State, first of all, kind of helping create the advancement track. It does strike me that many guests have come onto the show and then they say something like, nobody goes to college wanting to do advancement or nobody thinks of advancement as a career. And I have been thinking about that because it rolls off the tongue. People say it all the time. Why not? Why don't we have an advancement track? It's changing. Uh, Vanderbilt has a really good program now. Um, you know, I think NC State is still focused mainly on that student life side, but they offer that. I think our generation is the generation that grew up in the industry in a way that saw it as more than a job. And that's not to discredit anybody who was before this generation, but you know, you go back to the 1990s, advancement work at the university level was comprised of community members, you know, good alums, alumni, folks that were engaged and ingrained in the organization and the environment, and they had a lot to contribute, and they did a really remarkable job. And through the 2000s, you started to get a more professionalized role, and that's when you saw some of the vendors, I think, also take a same step forward. You and I are similar age. I watched you, you know, from the, the ever true beginning days and, and the volunteer role of a reunion person to what you built. Same thing. Nobody woke up and said, I'm going to create this enterprise. Our generation just sort of figured out this is a field we enjoy. I just was lucky enough to have one year left in degree to make that pivot. Had it been a year later, I would have had a master's in student affairs and still found my way into advancement work. And so you then went to East Carolina University. So you are really, you are really just covering the state. Great North Carolina coverage, as we'll talk about on your next stop too. But tell me about the move to East Carolina and the kind of uh, shift from student yeah. to full-time professional. So I'd love to say that East Carolina was a, um, much like my decision for Western, it wasn't rooted in a lot of common sense, but it made sense at the time. It was probably wise today. Uh, my wife was there. Uh, we, we were we were dating. So she was a grad student still at East Carolina. And um, I had a chance to go back to Auburn and work full time. And uh, I chose the the path closer to home. She's also from the eastern part of the state. And I think it's worked out well for us personally. So we're happy with that. The draw was a gentleman named Paul Clifford. Um, and, and Paul is another transformative figure, I think, in our business. Paul is the lead at Penn State today, but he led the Oregon program. Prior to East Carolina, he led the James Madison program in alumni affairs. What I love about Paul is he is he, he was the first disruptionist that I worked alongside and taught me not to be afraid to disrupt, but in a creative and careful manner. And so Paul was building this remarkable program at ECU. And I learned negotiating. My first paycheck or first salary was $29,000 a year with a graduate degree. And I remember negotiating up with them, which didn't get me more than the penny. 
But I remembered learning alongside him for three years as he built a membership program from scratch that I got to help be a part of, which was fundraising in alumni affairs. The sponsorship approach that he took was something I had not seen and frankly, haven't been in a program since then that, that I think maximized it to that level. We would have family tailgates every game day and you would have the O'Charlie sweet tea and you would have the Liberty Mutual banner, but it was the days where membership marketing paid for the ability for associations to produce really good engagement work. And so it was the lifeblood and Paul took full advantage of it and built a small kingdom and quickly outpaced the annual giving team at East Carolina. And I think my last year there, we outperformed the pirate club, which at that time was a pretty good athletic, you know, booster organization. Um, so spent two of my three years doing uh, and, that. And I'll just share, Paul was a uh, guest uh, on episode 35 of the Rays podcast and is somebody that, I think of as a friend and mentor in the space. And shortly after he left East Carolina, he did take over uh, the alumni leadership at University of Oregon and actually had the opportunity to go visit him out there, which was just an amazing yep. uh, experience. I even snagged a uh, Oregon Alumni Association membership <laughs> trip, Dan. So, yeah. We, we can strike some of that from the record. The, uh, the, the fun fact with Paul, we still remain friends today. We contact one another from time to time. But Paul and I vacation at the same place. I won't say where. Um, same week every year. And over the past, gosh, 17 years since I worked with him now, I've still run into him literally as we've done our jobs or walked across the street to get a cup of coffee. Don't plan it. You just literally bump into one another. And it's like you bump into somebody you talked to a Monday ago, not a year ago. Um, and then Paul you also, yeah, go ahead. I said, Paul also taught me. So I remember this um, when I was there and I was young and I was focused on the salary just as much as the job. I had a chance to take a promotion for Paul. And I remember Paul said this, are you doing this for the money or are you doing this for the job? And I, like any 20 something year old was not truthful to myself or he, and I did it for the money and it was to lead the homecoming programs. I'm not an event planner. It takes a special person to do it. It's not something I enjoy doing. I spent about a year and a few months in that role and realized quickly what I missed was fundraising, which was the next step, which led me to App State. So if you could go back and mentor that Dan who's making that decision, what would you tell that guy instead how to approach it? Because nothing wrong with wanting to aspire for more salary yeah. in your 20s. I, I think, honestly, I mean, I can say it, but I think Paul was trying to say it at that time as well. You have to make sure that what you're doing is something you're meant to do and you enjoy doing. Um Something my father said to me very long ago, you mentioned my hobbies. I won't go into what they are, but at one point I thought about doing that for a living. And his answer was, if you really love it and enjoy it and you do it for work, most of the time it becomes just that work. Keep yourself balanced. But what it, what it reminded me of is if you are going to do it for work, you better really enjoy it. Because if it's just work that becomes more work, that's not a place to live. And so I would give somebody that advice. If you're chasing the dollar, it still better be worth it and aligned with how you're wired, what what you enjoy doing, what's meaningful to you, because that's when you produce your best product is when it's, you know, Evertree is a perfect example of that. If you didn't enjoy this, you would not have built the product that you've had. You know, you, there's no way you would have survived as long as you have personally as well as the business. Yeah, you got to be a real, you got to really love it, uh, you know, to persevere sometimes. And and I do. And and yep. I think it's spot on. It doesn't mean every day is a great day. Um, but, but, you know, I, people talk about YOLO all the time. I've been saying lately, look, you only work once too. And so you might as well spend your time, uh, doing something that you enjoy where you can achieve obviously personal goals too. And, and yeah. 
And I was lucky to find it. For me, annual giving was that love. And I didn't know it at the time. But when I, I knew I wanted to get out of event planning and I thought and reflected about what I enjoyed about my former job, I loved the creativity in mass marketing and fundraising, which alum, back in the 2000s, alumni membership marketing was nothing more than a annual giving shop with innovation. I mean, truly, I, I remember going to the camp conference all the time. And I was involved in that. And it, it, there's no difference in annual giving other than I think membership marketing folks were taking in for-profit tactics and smart sound marketing approaches into mass marketing fundraising. And so I ran to the hills, literally, and then ran to App State and worked with a gentleman there and Johnny Burleson and, uh, and a phenomenal woman in Susan Pettyjohn. Um, Susan is a consultant today for Washburn or Goldrich. She's somebody I use now here at the college. Um and they gave me a chance to lead my first annual giving program. Had never done it before, had never worked in annual giving, didn't know what I was getting myself into, interviewed, but was compelling enough to get the keys to the car and drove it. So what'd you do? Where'd you take it? I, I mean, App State, I, I'd like to say it was me. It was lucky. I mean, it was a lot of luck. Um, I had a really smart mentor once say, if any person who's successful denies that luck had something to do with it, they're boldly lying to you. And so there was a lot of luck in the App State decision. They had just won their first national title. They had just come off the heels of the Michigan upset, and they had two more national titles still yet to win. Anybody that's got some chops of fundraising could be successful there. So there was a lot of luck in me getting there. But we, we built a pretty good sound program. We, uh, we increased the alumni participation rate from – think we were at the low sevens to near 14%. And we did it inside of two and a half, three years. And that was during the early onset stages when nationally it was really starting to slide back. It also taught me that you've got to be different to make some headway. We built an unconventional annual giving shop there. We had the typical phone-a-thon and direct mail program, but we, I took an invoice style renewal that was working in alumni membership and marketing shops and brought it to annual giving and it worked phenomenally well. We had a, a far reach back and side bunch strategy. We built the student philanthropy program. Um, we focused on not lead annual gift officers, but young alumni gift officers. And then we built the program focused on culture. And, you know, in the three years I was there, I think it, you know, was remarkable in what we were able to accomplish. We, we raised our first million dollars in unrestricted cash. We grew participation by almost 100 percent and things went well. I'm not going to lie. You make it sound easy. I know it wasn't, but it does make me wonder, is there a playbook? Because, you know, you, you just shared a lot of common ingredients. OK, so there's like ingredients and there's a recipe and then you end up with the finished dish. Right. And so is there just a playbook that with the right execution, you can just kind of turn around any annual giving program if you had yeah. You know, some time and money. I mean, because because I do hear stories like yours from time to time where as all the national trends have been going the other way. And let's ignore participation for a second. Just straight up donor count declining. Mm -hmm. uh, is it just that fixable if you've got the right recipe, the so right? It is. Um, but I'm also I mean, for, for folks that are listening. And anybody who's worked with me in annual giving will, will attest to this. I'm the rare bird in the room that even 15, 20 years ago would stand up when somebody said participation's a, a poor man's game or something you shouldn't focus on. I would stand up and say, I, I disagree. 
And it's because I grew participation at three universities. And so you can do it if you're dedicated. And we can talk about that in a minute. But the, the playbook, you know, an app, no, there wasn't one. It was a lot of in, in ingenuity, innovation, creativity, and just trying new things, but also making sure that we paid attention to what worked. And so think about a typical business model of investing in what you know is already successful, sustaining it, and then not being afraid to try something new. If you're complacent, it doesn't work. That's the app state model. We, we For every year, we review. Whatever worked well, we doubled down on. Whatever didn't work well, we didn't necessarily cut. We evaluated first. Sometimes we actually put more resources in it. Sometimes we just abandoned it. The, the, the now though is, and I write about this in the book that you know Matthew Lambert and um, Michael Worth wrote in the chapter on annual giving, the magic number theory. And I've, I've talked about this at a number of conferences, which is this, a simple, easy notion of find three data points that you know drive your program, figure out what you're trying to measure and just focus relentlessly on it. So what I typically have done, and I've done it here at Charleston now, we did it at William & Mary. I actually did it just as I was leaving App State. We pulled a multi-year giving history to tell us what our donors were already telling us. So I'll, I'll share the, the William & Mary story. 47.3% of those donors had made a gift at least once over five years. So we knew at that point in time what our program was telling us. We didn't have an acquisition problem. We had a reactivation opportunity, but we had a retention challenge. We had gone from 47.3% making at least one gift over five years to at that time, I think a 17 or 18% participation rate. So we just weren't effectively renewing donors. And so we focused on retention. That was our number one focus. We pulled retention apart and looked for multiple data points. We knew frequency mattered. We knew consecutive year giving mattered. Those are the two big ones that we dissected and figured out. And these are different at every program. And we built programs around. We built the consecutive year giving society. We focused on student philanthropy and engaged them freshman, sophomore, junior year, not just senior year, so that we were graduating students with multi-years of giving history under their belt. Senior class gift retention went from 10% to near 40%. So those pieces help build. And so to me, it is very much a data-driven game. And if you can figure out what your data is telling you and focus on it relentlessly, you're going to be successful. That's, that's going to get you some growth. It's not going to give you everything, but it's going to give you the right direction. I love that. I want to talk more about it. I will say one of my least favorite sentences that I hear all the time in this sector is this year, we're really focused on acquisition. I've never had a year where I focused entirely on acquisition. I've actually, retention has been most of what I focused on, you know, for profits, Amazon, they will spend more to retain a customer today than ever to acquire a customer tomorrow because they just know from a business model that's more effective. So, at the same time, we do have to make trade-offs. And so I, I think retention is key in most commercial businesses, like you're describing. There is a unique, distinct, clear owner of retention. I have a person on my team whose number one KPI is retention. I have a different person who would be more focused on acquisition, for example. And it seems like one of the issues in the advancement sector is a lot of that gets blended mm -hmm. and there isn't clear ownership, which means there isn't clear accountability, which means we wake up on July 1st and then we sort of find out what the metrics yeah. were versus somebody, uh, or, or maybe we do focus on donor count, but the inputs to donor count could be first-time acquisition, improving the multi-retention, yeah. reactivating three-year lapsed donors. 
and instead it just feels like it's always blended. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the donor count versus participation focus, that's actually part of the, the solution to this. I have my own opinion is if you focus on donor counts, you leave yourself open to still fail. You can grow your donor base by 100, 500, some schools as much as 1,000 and still fall backwards in participation. If every year you focus on participation and you forecast what that denominator must be and that numerator has to be, you actually go into a year strategizing with taking into account that growth in the denominator as a part of your goal. And so that that just that mentality alone, I think, drives you to say the goal is not just to grow. The goal, the goal is to grow by X amount so that we truly grow our participation rate. Um, the William & Mary story, our denominator was about 650 for most of the years I was there. So for every 650 donors, we would get one participation point. So I would every year say, OK, we need to have this level of donors plus 650. And who's going to get me the 650? And student philanthropy played a huge role in it. That that 10% to 40% retention rate of senior class gift alone could equate almost 500 donors. So you almost start the fiscal year already negating that that change in, you know, the denominator size. Isn't a big part of the issue, though, that we historically anchored the ask around reunion cycles and effectively asked people to churn? Like, we, we didn't so, ask for retention. We, or maybe we said, would you make your... Gift, and then it would be a five-year pledge, although that tends to be more at the major gift level. We just kind of rolled that through to everybody else. I mean, it just feels like we invited yeah. this problem. So by now, folks that are listening, obviously I left App State, went to William & Mary, and um, we we built a remarkable program. And, and Brent, you're 100% right. The 47.3% that I cited, so students were a part of that. The second biggest culprit that was providing that change from that once every five year giving to that every year giving was reunions. I went and looked at pledge fulfillment rates and you saw in years one and two of a reunion five year pledge, fulfillment rates were in the 90s, sometimes the 80s. By year three and four, they were down into the 60s. And by year five, they were below 50%. Who remembers what they pledged five years ago to somebody? So we built a class ambassador program and got out of the five year, we still did five year pledges. But we built a model that made certain that those classmates, because the reunion cycle also recruits volunteers once every five years. So I speak to Brent, I get Brent's five-year commitment, and I don't call Brent again until our next reunion five years from now. We built the class ambassador model. We recruited almost 900 volunteers to reach out to every classmate throughout the years. So that peak and valley or ebb and flow, we, we saw a drastic change. So class participation rates across the board went up, not just in reunion years. So for us, it was retention was driven by reunion every five-year model, and it was driven by some of our young alums that were giving episodically. So while this is happening, and thank you for sharing the success story, I know it's one you're proud of. You should be. A lot of people have learned from that around the industry, and you've been really good at sharing and engaging AGDC is, uh, you know, the fight club for annual giving, as I call it. You're not allowed to talk about it. Then there's uh, other programs that uh, or, or conferences that you've been engaged with. And when you share what you just shared with me, dissecting the issues, breaking apart the key metrics that lead into a healthy and growing annual fund, what do you hear from people? Like, has anybody taken what you've done and just gone and implemented it, for example? Or is there something 
that is holding people back from just making it happen? I mean, I, I've, I've seen, I've worked with colleagues and I've worked with event and um, conference participants and I've stayed abreast of what they've done. Some folks have done it and done it really well. I've all, when I was at, um, I used to run for a different conference an annual giving kind of 101. It was, you know, really good group every year we got to the West coast and do this. And I would always say, look, when I'm going to share work for me, I want to work with you to figure out how we can get it to work with and for your needs. You can't just, this isn't a self-help book, but if you take some of these practices, you can work through it. So I've seen, I've seen successes and failures. I've seen some folks that have called me up and said, my God, I tried all this and nothing worked. Well, because they just applied what they heard and didn't think about their program. They took the same metrics that I was citing about a different university and applied it to their university. But those that actually did go and, and play some data science or sleuthing came back and had some good success. Um, and I've also had good colleagues. I mean, I've had three remarkable annual giving professionals work through, you know, Elizabeth Keppel's doing amazing things at John Hopkins before that at Florida. Chantel Smith is leading the San Francisco program. Megan Palumbo is taking the reins at William and Mary and doing good things. Three very different people doing very different things. But I think the mentality is there that annual giving is not, it changes every year. you got to question it. you got to think about it. You've got to be innovative, but you also got to be relentless. You spent 12 years at William and Mary, which is a very rare level of tenure for anybody in this sector, especially Great resignation, all of the openings that everybody is hearing about right now is a hot topic at the Case Summit. I know Matthew Lambert, he's a great leader, respected. You spent 12 years with him. What, what worked as it related to retaining you and retaining other colleagues? Uh, and, and what lessons do you draw from that now in your current role? Yeah. I mean, I I, I will for always be grateful to Matthew and, and will still continuously think of him as one of the most brilliant minds we have in the industry on the fundraising higher ed side. I mean, he's just, and I say this because that's part of why I stayed. He is an individual that ran a division that basically charged you to ask, to be curious, to be innovative, um, to be relentless, unapologetic. Uh, he did not care about the failure tomorrow. He cared more about getting past it and thinking about the success of standing behind it. And, and so that he ran the program that way. And, uh, you know, our executive leadership team, it's not just me. Mark Begley, I think he's in 11th year now. Heather Golden's in her 11th year. Um, I mean, he kept a remarkable leadership team together. It truly was. And it was fun. Um, we used to get all of our new hires together once a quarter. So, and, and we're going to be doing this here at Charleston. Every new hire comes in as a cohort and they get one meeting with the executive leadership arm and they ask us funny questions. What was Dan's first job? But they also ask us, why are you still here? My answer is because I get to work hard and play harder. I get to tinker. I get to think. I get to create. And we we help, you know, with Kestrel, you know, and gift camps. We got to help guinea pig and develop a product that multiple schools are using now. Most vice presidents would have looked at an annual giving guy asking to build technology and said, focus on unrestricted giving or get back to donor growth. We had the ability to truly tinker and I think do some creative things. Um, the school was special too. And, and we had a lot of really good things going for us. The, you know, I got to build the team twice. You know, we, before the great resignation, we, we built it and like all annual giving tenure, you lose folks after a period of time. I had Chantel Smith, which was a great arm, but then I got Megan to build it a second time. So. And, and when you, Think about your 12-year journey there. At what point 
did you start to think to aspire for a leadership role? I mean, was this on your five-year plan five years before you left, or did something happen that sparked this aspiration? And, and I also say that because there are a lot of people who come up the ranks via annual giving, and they're worried that that precludes them from doing what you've just done. Yeah. So one of the jokes I gave at my farewell kind of note was I, I showed up in Williamsburg in my 20s and did not expect to leave in my 40s with a family. Um, I, I honestly, I did not expect to stay at William & Mary for more than a handful of years. It was just one of those where, you know, I was doing the App State thing. It was going really well. I actually got brought down to William & Mary to do some cross-pollinating, to, to consult on a couple of things, and I could learn as well, and I enjoyed it. And so I, I just kind of found myself in my direction there. Didn't think that it was going to be that long of a, of a, of a tenure. Matthew was a part of that because it was fun, as I mentioned. Um, Sean Keister was somebody that, that came to mind early on as I got really good at what I was doing. And it wasn't just because I was, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the industry by any means. I don't think I'm the hardest worker. I think it was just, I was aware and I was networking quite effectively. I asked a lot of questions of smart people. If I heard something that I didn't understand, I tried to figure it out by going to the person that told me. Sean was somebody I met early on, and, and he's one of those individuals that moved from annual giving throughout. Uh, Fritz Schroeder at, at Hopkins is another one that, you know, and not only did he come up through annual giving, he's, I think, been at Hopkins his entire career, basically. Um, and so those were always in my mind, but I actually got comfortable with the notion I could retire at William & Mary without ever being the vice president. Um, I think the pandemic put some personal things in perspective for me. And so that, that is probably more a personal decision than anything. My family and everybody's down on this part of the Carolina coast and you get closer to them. And then when you begin to think about how you can apply what you've learned for a decade at a remarkable place and you found the right fit of an institution that could use that help and could help you grow, that was it. So it was kind of together. I and mean, Charleston here is sort of like William & Mary 15 years ago from an advancement side. Um, it's a small public liberal arts, which is where we started our conversation. I care deeply about it. That's probably why I stayed at William & Mary as long as I did. But no, I, I, to answer the question succinctly, I don't think I ever had this idea that I was going to just take steps up to being the VP. I thought early on, maybe, but I got pretty happy leading my part of the pie. Um, it just took the right situation and the right opportunity to get my attention. And you're in the thick of it, so I'm not going to ask you for the Charleston success story just yet, right? You're you're early on in the tenure there, but similar to walking in at App State or walking in at William & Mary, you walk into a new role and you've got to audit. You've got to audit the people, the process, the data, the technology, just to understand the lay of the land. And in addition to that, I'm sure build trustee relationships and get to know faculty and and, and be a a leader uh, uh, at the institution, you're only seven, eight months in. So I'm not asking for the, the finished product necessarily, but how have you approached the audit? And even knowing what you know now, if you could go back seven, eight months, what advice would you give yourself, um, you know, as you uh, have been drinking from the fire yeah. hose? So, I mean, I'm in my almost just past a half year mark now. So it truly is, is new. Um, and I actually, I, I didn't think about it until you uh, mentioned App State. I recently was telling our consultant this, that the, the single scariest moment of my career was the day I walked into my office at App State because I sat down and said, what the heck am I doing? I have no clue what I'm doing. 
the next scariest day was the day I walked into this office because it's a big step. Not that I couldn't do it, but it is, you know, I've been around enough. I knew how to do it, but you still have that moment of sort of questioning. But then I very quickly got to work because I realized I was at a shop and learned from a lot of really smart people. And I was actively involved in a lot of what we've got to do here. And so it came second nature in some sense. Um, we've developed this really quirky metaphor here. Um, and I'm not a, a marathon runner by any means. My, my wife has been. But this notion of you sprint to start a marathon, which is a real tactic that some folks use, which is they sprint out of the gate to get to a moment of reprieve so they can collect themselves and then run the race they want to run. So when I got here in February, I basically said, OK, sprint has to be short by its definition. So it's a six month sprint. It ends on September 1. So we've been sprinting for the last six months just to get ourselves triaged and in place so that we can now get our moment of reprieve, which is the rest of the fiscal year, so that we can plan and begin to really methodically think about what we need to do over the next several years. Those are things like we reorganized our leadership team. We've reorganized some of our responsibilities. We just hired the school's first student philanthropy and young alumni per dedicated person. We centralized communications. We took on all university events and moved it into the advancement shop so that we have the ability now to make sure that all of our donors have a similar and cohesive experience, both in the fundraising side, the engaging side, and the stewarding communication side. So those are things that just were, I knew they needed to be done and, and like a sprint, they had to be done quickly. And now we're in the place now of focusing long-term, what do we want to accomplish in the next one to three years? And we've got the place to take our breath and we've got the teams in place. We've got eight new colleagues joining us in the next six weeks, and we're going to have some good energy and momentum behind us. Eight Every bit of that was me watching good leaders and reaching out to folks. I've called more vice presidents I've worked alongside or met along the way um, because you do feel like you're on an island, especially when you come to a shop where you were the outsider because you can't call your old colleagues because you're concerned they may think you can't hack it. You've got to be careful how much you ask the colleagues that you're now inheriting. That's where networks are so important. And so I've, I've been happy to reach out to folks like Matthew or Paul or you know, um, DJ or any folks I've worked with along the side. And it's August 29th, listeners, by the way. So uh, that September 1st deadline is is right around the corner here. And so we got a hurricane tomorrow, so I'm losing a day. I wonder if they'll give me an extra day. When you, I, I saw that y'all just finished fiscal 23 above the 30 million mark, which was a few years in a row now, I believe. And I think one of the big tensions of this sector is, donors versus dollars. And there are trade-offs. And, and one of the real unique aspects of the philanthropy sector is it's one of the only sectors where you have customers, if you will, donors that are in the $5 a year level. And you've got people at 5 million or 50 million or now 500 million. No other industry in the world has that range of possible outcomes within the same customer or constituent community. <clears throat> And that's why I think in a lot of cases, we've heard from a bunch of leaders who, frankly, are relieved that U.S. News and World Report has removed participation because whew, now I don't got to worry about annual giving because my job is to raise as much money as I can in as short amount of time as possible, which whether that's an incorrect or correct perspective, it's reality for a lot of people. You grew up in this annual giving world. You recognize what that means for lifelong health of an institution. Because your job is not only to raise this money or next year's money or this campaign, it's to build a strong foundation and achieve the near-term goals, which is really, really hard. And so I'm just curious, now that you're in the top spot, where ultimately 
it's that 30 million to 40 million to, I don't know, maybe 50 million someday that probably is what your boss and the trustees are most focused on, but you've got to strike that balance. So how do you do it? I mean, I've been pretty open since I arrived and, and frankly, in an interview that I think it starts with culture. And, you know, we, we've spent the last six months addressing culture here as a team and culture as a um, as a division, as an approach and, and a culture of philanthropy, a culture of both engagement and philanthropy matter. And, and there's not a right or wrong way. I've said this multiple times you know, over my career. And honestly, I think Matthew is one of the first people I heard and saw demonstrate this. There's not right or wrong. There's just two different ways to approach this. Look at a campaign. People in my shoes approach a campaign one of two ways. They either approach it to get as much maximizing success over a heightened period as possible, which means they don't necessarily have to worry what they inherit because they may not be there for the next campaign. Right. Or they inherit the campaign that they know they're building already. So they've got to build a culture to make sure that they don't deplete the cabinets so that they can go into the next effort or the next phase successfully. I'm that one. That's culturally centered. I, I, I want to make sure that we've got a pipeline that is always moving and flowing in the proper direction. And I think advancement as an industry right now is at an inflection point where we've got a, I won't say a visibility crisis, but we've, we've got a, an identity challenge. USA, you know, giving USA data consistently shows that higher ed is less and less a priority in fundraising. So at some point, this is my own opinion, We've got to figure out our identity, which is you can give through Alma Mater to support other ways of passion. If, if you care about climate change, if you care about social justice, if you care about education, if you care about community enrichment or hospitality management, find ways where Alma Mater can fund those initiatives. And I think that's the inflection point that I'm actually focusing on. I think if we do that really well, the culture piece is going to come very easy because now you're not trying to force a large population through a small set of priorities you're actually taking a larger funnel of opportunity and getting your population excited by it. So a little bit of both there, but yeah, I'm culture all day long. I'm going to focus on our participation rate still, whether U.S. News and World Report ranks it or not. I'm going to focus on our growth of donors. And I'm going to talk about intentional engagement. And look, I think that the growth of donors and being able to show momentum, I would think is really powerful collateral or content for leadership, right? For <laughs> Uh, plan giving conversations to be able to talk to like, this is how you can help right now, but look over there and you will see there is a new generation of people being groomed to step into these shoes. And I, I feel like that's what people want to back a winner. Right. And, and this generation, this last two generations are more philanthropic than most generations before them. They're just more diverse in terms of their philanthropy and service and they're supporting different and more niche ways. And, and, my question I've asked folks that say, well, I'm going to look at the 97-3 rule, you know, getting 3% of our donors to get us 97% of the dollars. Well, that's a real small number. And if we don't capture that relationship now, when they do become, you know, millionaires or billionaires or whatever they are, well, I hope we've done an effective job of getting their attention and, and earning their philanthropy and earning their trust. Because if we didn't, that 3% can go away pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm always going to be in that 60-40 rule of I want as much of our populace to be excited and to be involved and to trust us with their philanthropy. Well said. What can advancement leaders learn from metal detecting? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, so my my search for archaeological treasures, it's, uh, you know, diving, metal detecting on land. Honestly, I just walk me through the 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 commencement of that hobby. Where did that come <laughs> from? 
How do you go down that rabbit hole? Must have been great during COVID. I mean, just tell me more. It, it's been fun. My, I've always been a, a lover of history. Um, and, and I and like I said, I, I'm curious. And so it's not enough to read it in a book. I love to actually hold history. I, I love to, to find it and to think about the last person that touched it and how it touched their lives and how they made a mark in this world. And it's just you can go down endless you know, stories thinking through it and then attaching it to something that you can factually back up. From a fundraising standpoint, it's been actually quite fun. I've met some remarkable people throughout doing this. I've, I've been very fortunate. You know, I, I had a magazine company that I owned with a friend years ago, and I got to meet different celebrities that got into this, and it's been fun. But you manage relationships. I've got land and property rights all around the country and actually one across the seas. And it's the same thing of working with donors. It's a genuine relationship. I, I send them family Christmas cards. I steward them. I talk to them. I thank them. Um, I partner with them and, and I've got access to properties that you couldn't do. I get invited down the boats to go diving, you know, offshore from strangers because I've done an effective job managing the hobby and, and relationships. For me, it's my release. You know, I love being on the water. I love being under the water when it's cold and I can't be in either on or under the water. I like being out in the woods and, you know, it's that connection to history. It strikes me as one of the most therapeutic possible hobbies one could have. Yeah. It is. It truly it, it makes you feel where you are in the world. And it gives you a lot of questions asked when, when you recover something that somebody last touched 200 years ago and you think about who they were and you read about who you think they were. And then you think about the time in which they lived, you know, and all the challenges that existed. And you think about what we're dealing with today in society. It does put into perspective. And I've been happy to share it with my children. They both go with me from time to time. And They've got an appreciation for where we are as a country and, and as a society and those that were before us and the challenges and the tribulations and the successes and the tra travesties that existed. Well, we went down a Facebook rabbit hole where, where Dan was gracious <laughs> enough to share a bunch of his history doing this publicly. And it's it's just amazing. It really is. And uh, And I think it's important that people have hobbies like that outside of work that we have that break even though it might feel like the inbox is always full and there's never time um what are your one or two favorite trips uh or finds recoveries that you'd be willing to share oh um i like the personal stuff so i have um let's see my favorite is i've got a uh, a uniform button that was I can trace back to the actual individual that worked and they had a military record that took place there in the Battle of Hampton Roads in Virginia, which is a historic, you know, it's the first time that iron, they call them iron class, but the first time that iron plated ships actually took part in the Navy. And, you know, this gentleman actually was a part of um, one of the ceremonies that took place during the day. So really cool uniform button of his and you know, longer story that goes into it. The other, which is just a really cool personal piece, was I found a Roman coin in a, in a river here in the United States when I was scuba diving on a uh, shipwreck. And it was a ballast pile. And um, they found these in the Spanish treasure fleet off of Florida from time to time. There's two theories. Uh, most likely it came from the River Thames or some other European city where they would take these stones as ballast to put them into the bottom of the holes of the ships for the transatlantic voyage to keep them weighted. And it probably got scooped up and attached to mud. So meaning a Roman lost it hundreds of years before it was scooped up in the River Thames, only to be lost again and found by me hundreds of years later. The other theory is that there are people like that, 
just like me back then that were hoarders that, that loved history and collected things. And maybe they had it on the ship and lost it on the way over here to the United States. The shipwreck was 1770s to 1800. So certainly not the uh, 127 AD Roman coin that was in the uh, ballast pile. So that's a pretty cool piece because it's it's got a story to tell and it may have been from a collector found by a collector. I love it, Dan. I've known you for a long time, but I feel like I actually know you now. So I really appreciate your willingness to to share and uh, and wish you the absolute best as you continue to to build the culture, which uh, without that, it's hard to do anything else that shows up on a strategic plan and, and look forward to continuing to to get to know you in the coming Perfect. months. Well, I, I appreciate it, Brent. And, and I hope you and there's a couple other gentlemen that are in the industry that you all are continuing to innovate and push us to be creative and to be tinkerers. And so, you know, Evertrue, I think, is a good example of that. And, um, you know, Adam and Kestrel, two other really good folks. But the three of you are doing a remarkable world of good for our world and our industry. So keep pushing us. We appreciate it. And likewise, right back at you. Keep pushing us. We need more of it. There's a lot of good to unlock. And and uh, and glad to be on the journey with you. So with that, I'm going to wrap today's episode featuring Dan Frezza, who serves as Chief Advancement Officer of Institutional Advancement and Executive Director of the College of Charleston Foundation. Thank you, Dan, and take care, everybody.